2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. <clears throat> Peter says, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And I read an extra verse for you, but I guess that's just bonus. Lanyap, lanyap as they say in New Orleans when I used to live there. Once again we see Peter saying that his main purpose in writing was to remind them. Remember, go back to 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 12 through 15. Here he'd already said to us earlier, I will always remind you of these things even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Now, why do we need reminders beyond the, fact, beyond the obvious simple fact that we easily forget things? I don't want to just deal with that. I want to go a little bit deeper. Why is Peter saying, my purpose in writing these two letters was to remind you? Oh, and by the way, we could waste a lot of time tonight trying to argue over whether or not the two letters he's referring to are 1 Peter and 2 Peter. There are some that think that because of the writing of 1 Peter, that that wasn't written as a reminder, but actually there must have been another letter that he had written prior to 2 Peter and all the, and you know what, scholars sit around and love to argue about all that kind of stuff, but you know what? <laughs> If God wanted us to know, we'd know, and we don't know. So uh, is it the two letters he's referring to, 1 Peter and 2 Peter? Possibly. Could there be another letter we don't have? Maybe. Uh, but he wrote them for the purpose of reminding them of things and stimulating the wholesome thinking. And so why do we need reminders? Well, apart from the fact that we usually forget stuff. But not only are we prone to forget, but we also have three enemies that are working together to pull us away from God. And you may or may not know this, but I want you to realize you have three enemies that are daily working to pull you away from God. And because of that, it's more than just, well, you know, as we get older, we forget or we're forgetful people. It's more than that. A lot of people don't realize you're in a war. The world itself, the mindset of the world is pulling you away from God. Everything that this world and its system is about is not about God. Remember, the ruler of this world is Satan himself. It's, he's the prince of the power of the air. He's the one that's kind of in true control for a, for a time period, on a leash, under limits, but he's been allowed to have dominion for a time here. Of course, remember, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. But if you remember back in Acts, I'm sorry, back in Genesis chapter 1, God gave dominion of the earth to who? Mankind. Mankind. He gave it to Adam and Eve. He said, look, you're in charge. I'm giving you dominion, rule and reign. But because of sin, we subleased it. 
We subleased it to Satan, and he's been allowed to have control for a time. And so the world is, without you paying attention, you may not see this, but hopefully you do. The world is pulling you away from a dependence on God. And we need to be reminded. Another thing that's pulling away, us away is Satan himself. I mean, Satan himself is dead set to pull us away from God. God and he are enemies. And if we, especially as his children, are on the side of God, we become his enemy as well. And not only that, your own flesh. Remember, it's not been redeemed yet. Your soul's been redeemed, your spirit's been redeemed, but your flesh has not been redeemed. And your flesh is still pulling away from God. Your flesh still has desires that you need to let the Spirit of God have mastery over. Otherwise, you'd be just like those false teachers we looked at last week when we were together. And how the difference between us and them is we all have the same desires. We all have the same pull away from God. But the difference between us and them is they gave in. They stopped fighting against the flesh. They followed its evil desires. We all despise authority. I'm sorry, we all uh, resist authority at times, but they despised authority, turned their back on any authority, decided they were in charge. And so keep in mind, part of the reason why Peter needs us to be reminded and put things in place to keep us being reminded, part of the reason why God's designed through the foolishness of preaching to have us continually be reminded is because, yeah, we forget, but it's much more than that, folks. You're in a battle and you don't realize it half the time. And most Christians today are oblivious to what's really going on in the spiritual realm. And Satan himself and the world itself and your own flesh will be continually pulling you away from your dependence on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so keep that in mind. All right. Satan's going to plant. Well, he then goes, let's go back and he says he's, he's, given us these reminders to stimulate you, it says here in the NIV, to wholesome thinking. You see what he says? Uh, I want to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. And the best way I can go at it is this. Satan's going to plant wrong, thought, wrong thoughts in your head, right? Sure. Hopefully you understand that. Satan's going to plant wrong thoughts in your head. The world's going to continually strive to educate you in ways contrary to God's truth. Just go to college somewhere in any of these universities and you'll see what I'm talking about. And on top of that, your unredeemed flesh isn't going to be helping you up much either. It's going to tempt you to fulfill its desires. So you need to have not just be a reminder of these truths, but we also need to be stimulated into positive direction toward wholesome thinking. That's why in Philippians chapter 4, it says, if anything is lovely, if anything is pure, if anything is right, if anything is good, if anything is trustworthy, think on these things and the God of peace will be with you. You can't just say, well, you know, I'm just going to have to fight against the world. No, we need to actively stimulate wholesome thinking. And folks, sometimes when we're under the attack of the enemy and we're going through a trial and God is using it to shape us as we looked at years ago, and it seems like that, a long time ago in our study of Hebrews, you know, he uses us as uh, different situations and trials to test us like fire and refine us like gold, you know, and we need to keep in mind that in those times that God is shaping us, we have to intentionally not just resist the devil, we also have to stimulate ourselves through the scripture and through the spirit of God to wholesome thinking and right thoughts. Like I said, that's why we need to understand that we're in a daily struggle. Now, this war has already been ultimately won by Jesus. You do hopefully understand that. This isn't a, I wonder who's gonna win. It has been won. He has been defeated. But there are still battles or skirmishes that are gonna happen every single day. Now, many of us love to quote the fact that God's mercies are new every morning. Isn't that true? Isn't that awesome? Isn't that wonderful? That he gives us a fresh slate of grace and mercy every day? 
Isn't it great that if you've had a day where you lost the battle yesterday, this morning, you could wake up and God says, let's start today. But listen, on the same side, the same way, on the flip side, your flesh it starts fresh every morning as well. And that's why you need to daily renew your mind. That's why you need to daily understand, look, I'm in a battle and my body ain't helping and the world's not helping and Satan's actively involved. And that's why daily we need to begin our days renewing our minds with the truth, spending time in his word. Please don't hear it as a law. Don't hear it as a duty or an obligation. But we need to start off each day understanding that we're heading off into the battlefield. Go to, with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and look at something Paul says here in verses 3 through 5. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3, Paul says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they, or the weapons we have, have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every what? Every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Do you see it? See, I think one of the problems that most of the Christians have, they don't understand the fact that they're in a battle. They don't understand. And then God has, for his purposes, left us in the battle. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trials. The one who desires to live godly life will be persecuted. So daily, I want to challenge you to be reminded to stimulate your thoughts toward wholesome thinking, to understand that Satan, the world, and your flesh are going to be pulling you away from God. And if you don't intentionally set your mind on things above, guess what? You will lose the battle. The war's been won, thank God, through Jesus. He's been defeated and he knows his time is short. But at the same time, if you want to experience victory in your life, if you want to experience defeat of the flesh, if you will, power over sin that is all available to you because of who you are in Christ Jesus, it's going to take you learning how to daily renew your mind. Renew your mind. And what does it say in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2? I beseech you, therefore, brethren, I beg you, therefore, brethren, I urge you, whatever translation you use, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your spiritual act of worship or your reasonable service. And don't be what? Conformed to the pattern of this world. Well, how can we be conformed to the pattern of the world? Well, the world's trying to conform you. But then we are to be transformed. And by the way, in the Greek, it reads in the daily renewing of your mind. And the renewing of your mind is not a one time thing. Our English translation of that makes it kind of hard to, to see it fully. I always would put in your notes there a daily renewing. It's a continual renewing and the renewing of your mind. And then the cool thing is, is then you'll know what God's will is. You'll be able to hear God. All right. So all that from back of our our beginning here of chapter 3 where he said dear friends this is now my second letter to you I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles now he's just said that his purpose in writing these two books is to remind them and to stimulate them wholesome thinking but he also says I want to get specific about something I want you to be reminded of I want you to be I want to be specific about something that I want you to recall. And then he says, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets 
and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. So this is where we need to go for right now. What is this command he's wanting us to recall? What are the words of the prophets that he wants us to recall? What is the command given to us through Jesus, through the, to, from Jesus through the apostles? What is this command? Any idea? Well, actually, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is a wonderful command, but I don't think it's the one he's referring to here. Now, I do believe that is the one he was referring to back in chapter 2, verse 21. Go back to chapter 2. Uh, we'll start in verse 20. Chapter 2, verse 20, when he's talking about the false teachers, he said, If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and overcome, they're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. It would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then to turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Other of them, Proverbs true, dog returns with vomit, and a salad is washed, goes back to rolling in the mud. I think the command there is referring to love the Lord regard with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the command there I think he's referring to. But this command, I think, is a different command. Now remember, listen to what he says. I want you to recall the words spoken by the prophets and the command given you by Jesus Christ through the apostles. Bill gets the gold star. It's his second coming. And I'm going to show you that in the context of what's going on here, he's wanting to remind them that Jesus is coming back. You remember how the fact he has been dealing with the false teachers here? See, again, we have a tendency to break these letters down into segments because we got chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. But he didn't write chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. He wrote a letter to this church. And in the context of what's going on, he's just been talking about these false teachers and what? Their coming destruction. It's and he's been... Verse 3, knowing this first. Exactly. And that's, what, and that's where, and this is the key. In the context, like Bill just pointed out, as he says, I want you to recall what the prophets have said and what God said through his apostles, the command he gave you. So first off, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers are going to come following their evil, own evil desires. They'll say, where is this coming? He promised. Now, let's be honest. If he was referring to some other command, that would be out of left. That whole comment about his return and people scoffing about his return would have come out of left field. Like, well, what's that got to do with anything? But I want you to take some time here. We're going to take a look and see. This command is that we be ready and watching for Jesus' return. Okay, in the context he says, first off, scoffers are going to come and say, where is this return he spoke of? And like I said, this seems to be totally out of left field unless it was tied to the command being referenced. But Peter then goes into great detail to explain and defend that Jesus in, will indeed return. And when he does, judgment is coming. I'll say that to you again and we're going to take a look at this. Peter then goes into great detail to explain and defend that Jesus will indeed return, and when he does, judgment is coming. Look at chapter uh, 3, verse 7. He says, By the same word, the present heavens and earth were re are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction by ungod uh, of ungodly men. Look at verse 9. The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to... to, to uh, um, to repentance. And now go to chapter 2 and look at verse 9. He said, if this is so, chapter 2 of 2 Peter, look at verse 9, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing the punishment. In the context of what going is going on here, he is saying, I want you to recall what the prophets said, 
and I want you to recall the command of Jesus through his apostles. Now, I'm going to take some time to, to break this down for you. We're going to take a look at all of them. But I don't know if you guys know this or not, but 25 of the 27 New Testament books all reference, directly or indirectly, the return of Jesus Christ. Go ahead. I just thinking that uh, you know a lot of people say that we're in the New Testament church, the Old Testament doesn't matter. Oh. He's saying that the New Testament and Old Testament are just as important. Exactly. You, you can't, don't be careful the churches that say, oh, we just read the New Testament, we ignore the Old. They think that the God of the Old Testament is not the God of the New. He changed? That's a dangerous thing. Exactly. So I want you to see what, 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 what's going on here is this wholesome thinking that he's stimulating them to is to remind them, hey guys, um, what should be behind everything we do and how we live is an understanding and a reminder, Jesus is coming back. All right, so let's take a look. Let's see if the prophets talked about the return of Jesus to the earth. No, by the way, I hope you understand that I'm only giving you a microcosm of the fact that they talked about it a lot. If, you, if you're not sure, go on the website and listen to the study of Revelation if you've got a few days. All right, go to, go to Jeremiah chapter 23. Go to Jeremiah chapter 23 and look at verses 5 and 6. I'm just going to give you just a couple real quick to give you the idea. In Jeremiah 23, look at verses 5 and 6. Says the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. What is this prophecy saying, folks? It's saying that there is a day coming in which God is going to raise up a descendant of David to live on the earth and to rule and reign in Jerusalem, just like David ruled and reigned in Jerusalem. But during his time, Israel is going to live in safety. Judah is going to be saved. Oh, and by the way, let me tell you his name. His name is the Lord, our righteousness. There's only one person that refers to, by the way. And this prophecy has not yet been fulfilled because no one has ruled in Jerusalem when Judah was in safety and Israel was in safety. This is a future time, folks. Jesus is literally coming to the earth, and he is coming back. Oh, let's look at some more. Go to Malachi chapter 4. Last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. All right, Malachi 4, look at verses 1 and 2. It says, Surely the day is coming, it will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and that day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or, branch or a branch will be left to them, but for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go out and leap like calves released from the stall. Do you see it? There's a day coming, and oh, by the way, we've got a further picture of this day when the one of righteousness comes, which is Jesus. It's going to be a day of judgment. And it's going to burn. Remember what Peter said? It's going to be a day of fire. You're going to see that even more in a little bit. We'll go to Zechariah chapter 14. You're right there in Malachi. Turn left a little bit. Just go back one book to Zechariah chapter 14. Look at verses 1 through 4. It says, The day of the Lord is coming 
When your plunder will be divided among you, I will gather all the nations to Jerusalem to fight against it. The city will be captured, the houses ransacked, the women raped. Half of the city will go into exile, but the rest of the people will not be taken from the city. Then, after this, the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. On that day, his feet, the Lord's feet, will stand on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, forming a great valley with half of the mountain moving north and half moving south. And then it goes on to further prophecy. I just want you to see here the prophecy says the Lord Jesus, the son of righteousness, the Lord, our righteousness, Jesus himself is coming back to the earth and he's going to literally stand on the earth. And what we know is the millennial kingdom will begin as he touches down and, or as steps on the Mount of Olives. Actually, I think the Bible teaches he'll already have been on the earth, defeating his enemies in the battle of Armageddon all the way from uh, Basra to Jerusalem as he defeats them through the Jezreel Valley. But at the end of that time period, he'll ascend the Mount of Olives. He will stand there. It will split and the millennial kingdom will begin. But folks, Jesus himself is going to literally come back to the earth. Now, here's one of the ways I can prove it to you. See, there's a lot of Christians today, and most of mainline Christendom doesn't believe in an actual millennial, which that means a thousand-year reign of Jesus on the earth. And that, by the way, you're going to find that thousand-year thing to be interesting and important in a few minutes later in our study of 2 Peter. But just keep that in mind. There, most Christians today, most mainline Protestant Christians, do not believe that Jesus will literally come back and rule on the earth for a thousand years. They think that that is a spiritual thing. It's, it's, it's a ruling and reigning, and they all debate on how it's all going to play out. But they don't literally believe Jesus himself will come back to the earth and that there will be an actual thousand years of Jesus and we with him on the earth ruling and reigning. And if that is the case, we got a problem. Because back in Genesis, God made a promise to Abraham. Listen closely to what God said to Abraham. He said, I am giving to you and your descendants this land. Let me ask you a question. Was the land ever given to Abraham before he died? No, you remember when, it, when Sarah died, he had to purchase a piece of property in order to bury her? If it was his, he didn't have to buy the land. He could just bury her. But he never had the land given to him. Oh, by the way, after he died, Isaac was told the same thing. His son, Isaac... I'm going to make you the same promise I made to your father. I'm going to give to you. You can double check me and go look and see it for yourself. I'm going to give to you and your descendants this land. By the way, did Isaac ever receive the land being given to him? No. Oh, after Isaac came Jacob and God made the exact same promise to Jacob. I'm giving to you, Jacob, and your descendants this land. Well, guess what? If there's no millennial kingdom... If there is no thousand year reign of Jesus literally on the earth, where, by the way, the Bible says that the ones who have died in Jesus are going to come back with him and they're going to rule and reign with him. Jesus told his disciples while he was on the earth, you are going to sit with me and with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob at the feast in the millennial kingdom on the earth. He said, oh, by the way, um, my promise to them will be fulfilled. It will be given to them. They will receive it. It will be their inheritance, and they're going to have it for a thousand years. Folks, if Jesus doesn't come back and set up his kingdom, he lied to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you can't take your salvation to the bank because he might break his promise to you. But oh, thank God, we don't have to worry about that. 
There's no way to spiritualize it, folks. Jesus is literally coming back to the earth. Oh, and by the way, watch out for the false teachers who say that he isn't. Watch out for the false teachers who say, well, oh, he's going to come and gather everybody at the end, but there's no Jesus on the earth. Oh, the Bible says there is. Actually, the New Jerusalem is later on, at the end of the thousand-year reign. The New Jerusalem is actually at the end of that time period. So, All right, so they were told by the prophets that Jesus was coming back, but also the apostles were told by Jesus to be ready and watching for his return, and they passed this message on to the churches. Go to Matthew 24. You're right there in Zechariah. It's just a couple of books to the right. Go to Matthew 24 and look at verses 42 through 44. Here Jesus is speaking to his, his disciples, which we know them now as the apostles. And he says to them in Matthew 24, verses 42 through 44, Therefore, keep watch, because you don't know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour in which you do not expect him. So here is Jesus telling his disciples, we know him as the apostles now, look, I'm coming back and you just need to be ready. When? That's not the issue as much as you being ready and watching. Be ready and watching. And like I just told you, these apostles then passed it on to the churches. And if you'll notice, most of their teaching was about the return of Jesus Christ. Again, 25 of the 27 New Testament books reference the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. Uh, some man has done some research and he's found that one out of every 25 verses in the New Testament refers to the return of Jesus. Go ahead. Is this the rapture? No, are, are you saying, is this the rapture? It's the, he's talking about his second coming. Okay. But the so second... See, the well, here's the deal. The second coming has two parts. See, in the Old Testament, the Jews understood that the Messiah was going to come. What they didn't understand, what they missed, is the Old Testament prophecies said that the Messiah's coming had two parts. He was going to come the first time as the suffering servant, and he was going to be killed. And then he would rise from the dead. Isaiah 53 actually tells all of that. Psalm 22 makes part of that prophecy. But they missed that. They didn't understand that his first, or that his coming, if you will, had two parts. A coming to die, and then to leave, and then a coming again. What we also miss out, and which is causes confusion in Christendom is, his second coming has two parts a gathering of his bride, and a return to the earth. And so whenever you're going to try to break down which is this referring to, you've got to kind of put it together in context. All right? And in this sense, for us, I believe this is pointing to, we don't know literally when it's coming, but we're to be watching and ready. Now, I personally think that if you read the Bible, when he literally comes to the earth, it'll be pretty clear. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you've read Revelation and you saw what happens by the end of the book of Revelation at the end of that seven year period there of the tribulation, I don't think there'll be any question as to the fact that something's going down and he's almost here because the Bible actually tells you how many days you can count. So I lean toward he's referring to the rapture here. Yeah, that's what I, but at the same time, I don't want you to just hear rapture and not think second coming. The second coming is his return to the earth, but it has two parts. He's going to come and gather those that are his first. And for a seven-year period, we're going to be with him. There's going to be the judgment seat of Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And all during that time period, he's going to be dealing with the tribulation period, which wasn't for us. Because remember, 77s were decreed for Israel and for the city of Jerusalem. 
Uh, we're not included in that. I don't believe the church will be going through the tribulation because of that. That's one of my main reasons why the distinction between the church and Israel. And while he finishes with that one last seven year period that's left for the nation of Israel, we'll be with him. But the Bible says when he comes back, we are going to come with him. But he's the only one that does the fighting. You'll notice that the scripture says we're going to be dressed in white, riding on white horses, if you will. And he himself will be ahead of us and his robe will be stained and covered with blood because he will defeat all the nations himself. What? The sword out of his mouth. Let me show you something. We'll just take a quick little detour here. I just feel like we should do this. Go to Isaiah. I think it's chapter 63. And I sure hope my memory's right. Otherwise, we're taking a detour to a dead end. Isaiah 63. Yes, it is. I thank you, Lord, for, your, for the memory you gave me. Isaiah 63. This is why I told you earlier, I think the literal return of Jesus, when he actually touches ground on earth, if you will, or at least hovers and begins his work on the earth, I used to think he came straight back to the Mount of Olives. Because remember, he was on the Mount of Olives and the disciples, understanding the prophecy, said, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now? And he says, not for you to know the times of the date the Father set by his own authority, but you receive power and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then he ascended and they stood there looking from the Mount of Olives and the angel said, this same Jesus will return in the same way in which he's left. For years, I thought that meant he was coming back right there. Because the prophecy said he was going to step on the Mount of Olives and going to split in two. But as I studied the scripture more, I came to realize... Actually, he does a lot of stuff on the earth before that stepping on the Mount of Olives. Actually, the scripture says, if you remember, during the second half of the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to go after Israel. And we saw in Zechariah 14 that the city is going to be surrounded. They're going to be attacked. Women are going to be raped. Half will go into exile. There's going to be a group of Jews that run for safety out into the desert. Many believe it's in the area of Petra, which, by the way, is in the area of Edom, which is also where the city of Basra is. And God's going to protect them there. Remember the prophecy in Revelation, how the dragon spewed this water out of its mouth, but God had the earth open it up and protect them, and somehow he protected them. And the Bible also says they're going to look on him whom they pierced. Well, they're not in Jerusalem. The ones that are believing and left won't be in Jerusalem at, that, at the end of the tribulation period. They're going to be hiding in the desert. I believe the Bible teaches that it's Basra in Edom. I believe Jesus returns to them there. He reconciles the nation of Israel. This is Jim. I think it's going to happen on the Day of Atonement that year when he reconciles them and covers their sin. And then from that point, from Edom, he is going to be defeating the enemies of Israel all the way to the city of Jerusalem, all the way through what we call the Jezreel Valley of the Valley of Armageddon, as we know as the Battle of Armageddon at the end of the, tri the tribulation period. And he will then ascend on the Mount of Olives. And I believe on the Feast of Tabernacles, the day that God comes to dwell with us, that's when he's going to step on the Mount of Olives. But listen to what it says here in Isaiah 63. Listen closely. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why are your garments red like those of one treading the winepress? Isn't that a revelation type wording right there? I have trodden the winepress alone. From the nations no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart and the year of my redemption has come. I looked but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm worked salvation for me and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger and my, in my wrath I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. There's only one person this is referring to, folks. You do understand that, right? 
That's Jesus. And where is he coming from? He's coming from Edom, from Basra. So I think Jesus returns to the earth in the area of Basra, reconciles the nation of Israel at the end of the tribulation period, defeats his enemies in the battle of Armageddon all the way to Jerusalem. And when the battle's over, he ascends the Mount of Olives and it will split in two and the millennial kingdom will begin. We don't know when the rapture's going to occur. We need to be watching and ready. But I believe, according to the study of Scripture, you'll know the day of His return. The prophecies have been saying how long the seven-year period will be, so many days here, and from this point it'll be so many days, all that. Allison, go ahead. I'm just wondering, they, those who are dying in this part, in the wrath, they did not accept His blood as the sacrifice. Oh, he's the, so the, the their blood yeah, he's is the sacrifice. Well, call it a sacrifice, but it doesn't cover their sin either, though. Know, so. But there's got to be atonement for I mean, there's got to be blood. Yeah, well, the, yeah, the, he, they're, they're suffering for their but sin. Not right. no, no, people he's defeating are the, all the enemies that have gathered against Israel. Remember, this is at the end of the tribulation period. I mean, they pretty much rejected God. Remember, even at the end of the tribulation, they're going to, even though the mountains are falling on them and the hailstones are happening, they don't repent and they curse God and they'll fight against God. Yeah, this is him defeating his enemies. But we'll be with him. Other prophecies with this show that we're going to come with him when he has this battle. But we stay clean and white because he does this all by himself. So we're going to be in Edom too? We will come, when he comes, we'll come with him to that place. From Edom? Oh. No, from heaven. Oh, okay. We're, we'll have already been raptured. We'll have already been taken. Like I said, we're going to go through the judgment seat of Christ. We'll receive our reward for eternity. We're going to, oh, our wedding gifts, if you will, in a sense. We're going to go through the marriage supper of the Lamb. All of that. We're going to come back as His bride. That's what I meant. When we come back, are we coming to Edom? I, I, I think we're going to go where Jesus is. If He's in Edom, that's where we're going to. But we're just going to be watching. We're just going to be watching. All this all goes on. Alright? Now, let's get back to our study here. Alright? The prophets said that Jesus was going to return. And I only gave you a minuscule, minuscule portion there's a ton of prophecies about the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. To literally rule and reign. We know now from Revelation that that time of his reigning is going to be a thousand years. You'll see that in Revelation chapter 20. And it says it six times in four verses. A thousand years, a thousand years, a thousand years. Everybody keeps saying, well, that's just, it's, a, it's just a symbolic thing. No, it's literal. It's literal. On top of that, um, the apostles were told by Jesus, you better be ready. And then they passed that on to the churches. And look at James chapter 5. Look at verses 7 through 9. Go to James chapter 5. <clears throat> There's a large physical fault there now in that well, I couldn't tell you, but it, he don't need well, he, he don't need any head start. It may be something he uses, but <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't tell you. I really don't know, but it may be. James chapter 5, look at verses 7 through 9. James says, Be patient then, brothers, until what? The Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Again, we're going to deal with these terms, near and standing at the door. We're going to deal with those tonight. 
So just kind of keep that in mind. But keep in mind, here's one of the apostles who was taught by Jesus about his return. He's doing what he was told to do, passing it on to the churches. Peter said, I want you to recall the words spoken by the prophets and the command given by Jesus through his apostles to the church. And the command it's referring to, I believe, in the full context of 2 Peter is that we're to be ready and watching for his return. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll get to verses 13 through 18. A very familiar passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But I want you to see it. Verse 13 of chapter 4, Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, I want you to see this. I believe this passage is referring to the first part of Jesus's second coming. Remember, his second coming has two parts, the rapture of the bride. We go be with him for a seven year period and then he comes back. Now, this is referring to the rapture part. Here, Jesus doesn't step foot on the earth. He comes in the clouds. Those who have already got, died and gone with him come with him, but their bodies come out of the ground. Those of us who are alive at that time, our bodies are changed. We're caught up to be with him and we go be with the Lord. And when he does come back literally to the earth, we're going to come with him at that time. But I want to show this to you because there's something I had to deal with this weekend when I was up in Chicago. Uh, I had a group of people come up to me and say, do you mind answering Bible questions? And I said, I love answering Bible questions. They said, well, what about the doctrine of soul sleep? And I smiled because it's one of the easiest false doctrines to prove wrong. You see, there's a doctrine out there and some denominations teach that when you die, you don't immediately go be with the Lord. Your spirit goes into a sleep because the Bible says they fell asleep. And they teach that you don't know that you've been asleep for a thousand years or whatever. It seems just like that. But at the end, everybody's resurrected at the exact same time. And so they teach that there is a doctrine, what they call soul sleep. This is one of the passages. Now, you understand something. And I'll tell you this now, if you might not understand this. But if you ask me a Bible question, a Google search happens in my brain. <laughs> no, seriously. This is how God's wired me. Some preachers, you'll say, hey, can I ask you a question? And they'll try to think of a verse to answer that question. If you ask me a Bible question, it's like hitting a Google search. 15 verses will all of a sudden pop up into my head that deal with that. That's just how God's blessed and I thank God for the gift. But I told these people, have a seat, pull out a piece of paper. Let me just tell you real fast how foolish the doctrine of soul sleep is. Because they teach that you don't go be with Jesus until the very, very end and everybody wakes up at the same time. We got a problem with that if that's what the Bible really teaches because the Bible says Jesus on the cross turned to the thief on the cross and said, today you will be with me in paradise. We also know on the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah were there with Jesus. They didn't look sleepy. 
They weren't yawning. They were actually talking with Jesus about what was going to take place in Jerusalem. Remember in John chapter 8, Jesus said that he had seen Abraham. And they said, wait a minute, you're not even 50 years old. You've seen Abraham? And he said, before Abraham was even born, I am. He, he acted like Abraham was alive and they knew each other and they did. All the way through scripture, look closely here. You'll see that God will bring with Jesus those who have what? Fallen asleep in him. The term sleep is just referring to what happens to our bodies. They go to a sleep, if you will. The real you, absent from the body, is present with the Lord. By the way, if you try to find that in NIV, you won't. Because it's worded differently and it'll drive you crazy. Because I know it's here. I grew up all my life hearing it. Well, it's worded in the King James that way. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. All the way through scripture. And I could go into more, but we waste our time. Hopefully you understand that when you die, if you are in Christ, you do not die. You keep right on living. Just learn to breathe in a whole new way. You enter into the presence of the Lord. And you don't have your new body, though, until the time of the rapture. And that's what this is talking about. Remember, we told you how your flesh is pulling you away because it's not been redeemed yet. But at the time of the rapture, when you get your redeemed bodies, and what a wonderful, wonderful day that will be. It's going to be an awesome, awesome thing. Technically, everyone keeps living. It's just your destination. Exactly. Everybody does live on. But it's kind of hard to say spending eternity in hell is life, though. You know what I'm saying? You are living in a sense, but I wouldn't call it living. But you know? you've got the, the man in hell who asks that like I say, you're adding to the Google search. Exactly. Luke 16, who he woke in hell and he knew what was going on. He, he wasn't sleeping. We could go on and on. Folks, it's throughout the scripture. Soul sleep is a bad doctrine. Go ahead. What do they mean by the dead in Christ shall rise first? If we're not in other words, the ones who have died. God, there is no dead. Well, there, your body died. The body's already rotten away. Yeah, but God can, if he made you out of dust of the ground, he can make it up out of the dust of the ground again. Yeah, and so it's talking about, I'm sorry? It'll be redeemed like the rest of creation. That's why the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 15, that creation waits in eager anticipation for the sons of God to be revealed. And that's talking about the rapture. Because creation was subjected to frustration until then. And it, the, See, man, you've got to get me preaching here and we'll never get done here. But as I've heard, if you heard me say before, in the Old Testament, there were three laws of redemption that pointed to things in the New Testament. The law of leveret marriage was the law of redeeming the bride. We know it from the story of Ruth and Boaz. Remember, if a, if a man died and he didn't have any children to bring, leave his le legacy, his brother was to redeem him or his bride by taking his brother's wife as his wife. We know the story from Ruth and Boaz. Well, the Bible says that at the cross, Jesus redeemed the bride. We become the bride of Christ. He bought us back with his own blood. Your soul has been redeemed, folks. Your spirit has been made alive. You are redeemed in spirit. Your body, though, has not been redeemed yet. Oh, but there's a picture of that in the Old Testament, too. It's called the redemption of the slave. Every so many years, the slaves were to be redeemed and set free. Our bodies, the Bible says in Romans 6, are still slaves to sin. But at the rapture, at the rapture, our bodies will be redeemed. Our souls already been redeemed. Our spirits been redeemed. But our bodies will be redeemed at the rapture. But there's a third law of redemption. You'll find it in Leviticus 25. Where the land, if someone lost their land for whatever reason, a near relative could purchase it back for them. Oh, and by the way, if you go to Jeremiah 31, you'll see some prophecies about how Jeremiah was told by God to go purchase a piece of land. Because they were about to go into captivity. But he said, look, I'm going to bring you back here. So go buy a piece of land. Oh, and write the terms for redeeming the land on two scriptures scrolls and seal it with seven seals and what happens at Revelation chapter 5 and chapter 6 
as Jesus opens the seals, everything happens on the earth. It's the land is getting redeemed. That's why Romans 8 verses 15 and 7 and uh, following says, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. That's going to happen at the rapture because the earth knows we're next. We're next. And that's going to happen during the tribulation period where God gets his land back and he redeems the earth. And so as the earth will be redeemed, our bodies will be redeemed. Our thank God our spirits have already been redeemed because of Jesus. Now, we hopefully understand that. Well, go to Titus. You're in Thess you're first, second Thessalonians. Turn over to Titus. Just keep turning to the right. A couple of more books in the T section, I call it. And <laughs> it's alphabetical. That doesn't help me very much because I still, I'm not real good at the alphabet. So Titus chapter 2, look at verses 11 through 13. Now listen closely though and tell me if this doesn't sound like 2 Peter chapter 3 that we've been reading. All right? Especially in the section that we haven't gotten to yet. Second, Titus chapter 2 verses 11 through 13. Let me show you what I mean by that. It says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Jump over to 2 Peter chapter 3 and look at what he says here in verses 11 and following. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. And then, of course, he goes on to talk about how there's going to be fire and destruction. And we'll deal with that next week. So, folks, let me just tell you, even though many people question it, Jesus is coming back literally to the earth. How do we know this? Well, Peter tells us it's because he said so. Very good, Allison. It's because he said so. Look at what it says right here. Look back. Look, look at verse 4. They'll say, where is this coming he promised? This is 2 Peter chapter 3. Look at verse 4. They'll say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these same waters, the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And by the same word... The present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. In other words, how do we know that Jesus is literally coming back to the earth? Because God said so? I mean, that should be enough. He can't lie. It's not like he won't lie. He can't. God created the whole universe by simply speaking it into existence. And by that same ability, his word, he has already said that he'll come again. And that day will be a day of judgment and destruction. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to turn to these passages. I really want you to write them down, though. There'll be a fun and interesting little study. I'm going to give you four passages. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, which talk about the day of destruction and, and the elements are going to melt in a fervent heat. Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. That's Matthew 24, 29 through 31, which talk about the sky rolling up like a scroll. Isaiah 13, 9 through 13 gives us some more pictures in the prophecy in the Old Testament. It's Isaiah 13, 9 through 13. And Isaiah 34, verses 1 through 4. Let me give you those again. 2 Peter 3, verses 10 through 12. Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. 
Isaiah 13, 9 through 13, and Isaiah 34, 1 through 4. And folks, when you just look at all those together, you're going to see something is still coming that is unbelievably cataclysmic on this earth. And there's no way you can spiritualize this. It is going to literally happen. Now, who are you going to listen to? Scoffing, doubting, false teachers or God? Hopefully we don't have to. Hopefully we pass that true or false question right there. Not only that, though, Peter reminds us that God in the flood has already leveled the earth once and judged all of mankind before with water. And he'll do it again. But this time he's going to use fire. He's already made a promise to, to sorry, to uh, mo try again, Noah and all his descendants, including us, that he'll never flood the whole earth again with water. But he didn't say, I won't judge the whole earth again. It's going to happen. And this time he's going to use fire. So in our time we have left, we have to answer this question. What's he waiting for? <laughs> the answer is more than one thing. There's more than one thing. First off, Peter says here in the context that his timetable is not even close to ours. He says, a day is like a thousand years to God and a thousand years like a day. In other words, well, you know when your kids were little and they had to wait a day? Oh, day! I'm not going to make it. Or if they had to wait a week. Oh, how long's a week? I remember when our kids were little and we'd be driving and they'd say how much further. And we'd sometimes tell them, 10 more miles. And they'd say, is that far? <laughs> 200 miles. Is that far? They have no concept. But you know what? For adults, if we have to wait a day, we understand. That's not so bad. If we have to wait a week, it's not so bad. Even a year. As we get older, years are going. They, they don't seem as, as long as they used to, do, do they? The, more you, the, the further along you get, time itself is a lot less, well, it's easier to grasp. But for a kid, that's forever. you got to understand, in comparison to God, to him, a thousand years is like a day. A day like a thousand years. In other words, well, he's outside of time. This, the two are almost the same to God. When we would consider a day to God, a thousand years seems like the same length. You understand what I'm saying? By the way, this will help you when you hear him say that his return is soon and that the judge is right at the door. It could be a thousand years away. Oh, by the way, when it was written, it was at least 2,000 years away. But to God, two days. If I were to tell you Jesus is coming back in two days, you'd think, dude, i got to get ready. That's quick, right? If I said Jesus was coming back in two days from right now, you'd be like, well, i got to get ready. I mean, I make sure I'm, I'm prepared. You see what I'm saying? It doesn't seem like much to you. To God, 1,000 years seems like two days. 2,000 years seems like two days. Do you see what he's saying? Now, please hear what I'm saying here. Possibly, not certainly, possibly, this might be a clue to the timetable of God's return. If we see the six days of creation, referring to 6,000 years down the road, and the seventh day he did what? What if God was giving us a picture that all of history was going to be roughly 6,000 years and then what well, we have, remember, the thousand year reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom, the time period of rest. If 
Please don't say Jim says that's what it is. I don't know. Nobody knows. But if it was a picture of all of, I believe they were six literal 24-hour days that he created. But if each of those 24-hour days was a picture of a thousand-year period, we're at the end of 6,000 years of recorded history of man being on the earth. What if? The old Jewish rabbis believed that it was going to be a seven, exactly that. Many Jewish rabbis did believe that there were going to be 7,000 years on the earth, six of them, and then the thousand, you know, the last seven, if you, the last um, time period of the seventh year. Folks, what if? The se I mean, because why did God rest on the seventh day? Was he tired? Do you think God said, man, I need a day off. I'm white. He wasn't tired. He doesn't get tired. So why did he rest? Well, there's lots of reasons and lots of answers to those questions. But what if one of them was he was giving us a picture of the millennial kingdom? If that is the case, maybe in our definition of near, the return of Christ is at the door. Now, Secondly, as we've already said, every day longer that he waits is another opportunity for someone to receive forgiveness. Aren't you glad he waited? I'm glad he waited till at least 1973. Right? Aren't you glad he at least waited to you? So keep that in mind. Now, I'm going to give you two other passages real quick. Ezekiel 18:23, because I know where we are time-wise here. Ezekiel 18:23. Actually, we're going to take the time to look at these two. Go to Ezekiel. I really want you to see them. These two are these are two important. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23, and then Ezekiel 33, 11, if you want to start looking at those. Ezekiel 18, 23. Listen to what it says. God is speaking. He says, Do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? You know, when the Bible, when the Bible says, um, He's not willing for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. I really believe that everybody has a chance. There are those who think that God's pre-chosen some for heaven and some for hell. I don't believe the Bible teaches that, folks. And this is one of the passages that will help you understand that he doesn't take any pleasure in the death of the wicked. He's just and he'll give them what they choose. But he doesn't take any pleasure in it. Look at Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Here's he's calling out to Israel because of their disobedience. He again shows us he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So there's lots of reasons why he hasn't come yet. And one of them, as we see here, is that he's given people an opportunity to respond in faith and he's given him one more day folks around this time last year some of us were getting pretty excited about the possibility of Jesus's return do you remember oh, yes. we thought we had it figured out right no actually we didn't think we had it figured out but we were watching really and hoping. some things we were really hoping is right but but some of the things that we could see in our minds seemed to line up and man we got really excited listen closely to why we got excited we got excited because of what Jesus had said and because it made sense to us. Have you lost some of that expectancy in the past year? No. <laughs> Put your heart on what he has said, not just what you can see. Remember what Peter says, I've written these books to remind you and to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. And oh yeah, those false teachers rejected the sacred command about salvation. 
But I want you to recall the command that was spoken of by the prophets and given to us by Jesus via the apostles about the sincerity and the reality and the need for us to be watching for the return of Jesus Christ. So I just want tonight as we close, if you've lost a little bit of that expectancy that you had about this time last year because you thought you could see how he was going to do it or when he might, go back and totally base your expectancy on the fact that he said he's coming back and to be ready. Oh, and we don't know when he's going to gather us first. So as the signs continue to point closer and closer to the actual literal return, we know that he's going to get us before that so that it's even closer for that time period. Do we know when it is? No. It was funny. I was in the Chicago airport last night and there was a man across the way sitting there reading his Bible. So I thought, well, if he's going to bring his Bible out, I might as well bring mine. And I pulled my Bible out and I was just sitting there reading it. man next to me said, we're getting pretty close to the end, aren't we? And he's obviously, he knows enough about the Bible to get himself in trouble, but not enough to get him saved. And he was heading to an archery tournament. He was one of the best, the world's best archers. Literally wins tournaments all over the country. We got talking. And the place is absolutely packed because the flight's delayed and all these people are just sitting there. And none of them are real happy about it. And as we're sitting there, I can't help it. My voice is loud and I start preaching. And this guy starts asking about the return of Jesus Christ and the end of the world and all this stuff. So I said, all right, I'll tell you. I mean, he's the one that clicked on the Google search. I ain't giving this. All these verses popped into my head. About an 80-year-old man was sitting behind me with his wife. And I could hear him in the background. New Testament says nobody knows. He's getting mad that we're even talking about the return. And so I put the guy from the archery tournament on hold, and I turned around to this couple, and I said, I, I heard what you're saying, and you're right. We don't know when he's coming. Anybody tells you that they know, just run away from him. But if you remember back with Jesus when he was on the earth, he, he really got on the Pharisees because he said, you guys know how to recognize the weather. And you don't know how to recognize the fact that prophecy is being fulfilled in your day. When I'm talking about being ready for the return, I'm not one of those guys going to tell you when it's going to happen because we don't know. But I can tell you this, understanding the scriptures and knowing what's going on in our world, signs are being fulfilled. Scripture and prophecy is being fulfilled in our day. And I don't want him scolding me like he did the Pharisees. And then I turned back around and continued preaching to the guy. <laughs> I want you to pray for a man named Ron. I don't remember his wife's name. They were on the airplane with me yesterday as we were flying home into them this morning. And of course they asked, what do you do? I'm just a preacher. I said, I'll tell you if you promise not to get up and run to the back of the plane. And I said, I'm a preacher. I said, but I'm not gonna hammer you. I said, you got questions, that's great. Otherwise, let's just fly. So we sat there and talked about their business and what they do and all that kind of stuff. And about, I don't know, half an hour into the flight, he, come, he leans over because his wife's between us and he says, so what's the answer? I said, what's the question? He goes, you know what the question is, the big question. I said, you talking the heaven or hell question? He goes, yeah. What's the answer? I said, do you really want to know? He goes, I'm asking. Which, by the way, folks, 
Isn't it awesome how God does that? I didn't have to do a thing. I'm to be watching and listening and ready. Don't let those evangelists tell you that you've got to go break the door down. The Spirit of God is the one that prepares hearts. And all I did was tell him I was a preacher and leave it at that. And the Spirit of God got him to the point where he said, i got to know. And I had the chance to share the gospel with him. I wish I could tell you Ron gave his life to the Lord. But, you know, God's working on him big time. But here's what I told him. And I'm saying this not only for everybody in this room, because God knows whether you know him or not. And, and I want to make sure you hear the truth. But I'm also saying it for those who are listening right now online at the web. I don't know who God's going to have tune in. And I want you to hear this. There's really only one sin that we go to hell for. You know, the Bible actually says that if you're able to keep all God's law and stumble at just one point, you're guilty as if you broke it all. But actually, there's really only one sin that we go to hell for. It ain't lust. It ain't stealing. It isn't adultery. It's rejecting God's offer, God's provision for your sin through Jesus Christ. By the way, that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says God will forgive every sin except one. And so I had the chance to just look at Ron in the eye and say, look, there's only one sin that God won't forgive. And there's one sin that everybody commits. And hopefully they don't stay that way. And that's rejecting God's offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. When he draws you, will you say yes? And the fact that you're even asking the question means he's tugging on your heart. And so I gave him my card and I just told him, if you do trust him, would you send me an email or just give me a call? Folks, he's coming back. Amen. He said so. Let's just get as excited as we were last time this year. And I can't wait for us to get together next week as we wrap up this study. And if you got something you want me to teach on next time, let me know when we get back together in September. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the way in which you work. Lord, may we continue to learn to rest in you and not feel like we have to serve you out of guilt or duty or obligation or pressure. Lord, may we come to understand that you're an awesome God and you've done it all and you just want us to receive it by faith, to walk in it by faith, to rest in your truth by faith. May we understand as you told us today at the Men in Motion meeting that everything that goes on in our life is really a gospel issue. It all gets down to whether or not we really understand the fullness of the gospel. Father, forgive us for thinking that the gospel is that we need to be saved and forgiven of our sins and go to heaven. It's so much more. It's every aspect of our life of living in full dependence and trust on, in you. So, Father, I pray that a big part, like you've shown us tonight, is an understanding that our lives are to be lived with an understanding of your return. And we watch it and ready. And, Lord, I pray that in the meantime, between now and when you do come, that we would be keeping our eyes open for the Rons that you're working on who are really curious about the big question and the answer. And Father, if you want to use us to help them come to know you by, the, by your power, it's you, not us. We'd love to see that happen. But I also pray that if we sense that you were saying that you were coming in two days, we'd not only be excited, we'd say we're ready right now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.